It's a great honor to be joined today by Dr. Sue Carter. She is a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia and a distinguished research scientist at Indiana University, where she holds an emerita position as the Rudy Professor of Biology and was formerly director of the Kinsey Institute for Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction. She's a fellow and past president of the International Behavioral Neuroscience Society and is known for her pioneering work on oxytocin, the love hormone, and its role in parental care and romantic pair bonding. Sue, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me as well. So you sent me an excellent article overviewing both your research career and some of your personal background. And you began mentioning that when you stepped onto the scene, their love was a taboo topic for, for scientific research. Could you talk a little bit about what that was like? Well, I wasn't intending to study love. I think in, when I began, we, we're talking another century, a different century, and several cohorts of psychology back in time. So I began graduate school in the 1960s, 1966. I did a three-year PhD. I was done in 1969. And at that point had a degree actually in biology, zoology. And as far as I could see, I knew nothing. I wasn't informed about research, Really, I certainly knew nothing about all of the complexities that I was aware had to exist that would contribute to behavior in humans. And in my case, I like to study mammals, so other mammals. Um, so it was a long journey. I, in some ways, it's hard for me to believe that I've been at this more than half a century because time passes very quickly and is kind of a not a real construct anyway. But um, I was, I set out not to study love because, again, I, I'm a biologist. The word love had at that point, no meaning to me as a biologist, but I was very interested in attachment. And that was a hot topic in the 1960s, primarily because of the work of Conrad Lorenz. So Lorenz won the Nobel Prize in 1973. And it was not because he was a great scientist, it was because he publicized and simplified his interests to a point that it brought a lot of other people, including me, into this field. And the field was sort of, how do we know what we are? How do we figure out our species, that to which we will later identify, that we will identify with, and also, attached to, and anyway, I hadn't really, when I started this, I didn't have a clear sense of what attachment meant, but I certainly would never have used the word love. So if you've read the paper 
carefully you know that I sent you, it was only decades later when I was accused of studying love by the media. Okay. I'll include that paper in the description of this video for anyone who's interested. Yeah, it's an Elsevier paper. Unfortunately, it's not open access yet. It will be on, on what's called PubMed Central eventually. But the, the paper, if you can find a way to post it, I can send it to you. I think that's a legitimate thing to do. I'm very pleased with that paper because... It forced me to think about this time, this span of half a century, actually, plus 55, 56, whatever. Let's see how many. It's a long, long time. And I had never in all that time really sat down and tried to understand carefully how I got dragged into the topic of love, because Again, I'm a biologist. Biologists can use the word love, but we'd be very, very uh, unwise to try to say that's what we were studying. So if the media, New York Times, USA, USA Today, someone's called it, they're gone now. Some of the media's gone. Um, They were looking for a way to sell newspapers. I learned. Uh, I was a little slow to actually understand how how that worked, but the work that I was doing was above the fold. Do you know what that means? You don't know because no. you've probably never seen a newspaper. So a newspaper is very in the beginning was a large sheet of paper, and you folded it over, and the part of it that would sell to the public was the part above the fold, the headlines, right? So my work was being put above the fold, but not by me, by the media and some of my collaborators who for various personal reasons wanted their work to be very public. Now, in fairness, these were my ideas that we were working with, my model, my theory, but um, lots of people eventually became interested in it. And some of them have done a super good job of that, of publicizing it. I've, I've never done a press release. I don't really want that level of scrutiny. It's, it's a lot of work to manage people's questions. But I'm still very interested and I continue to dig around to try to formulate something like a theoretical approach that other humans can use to understand themselves. Conrad Lorenz was an ethologist studying animal behavior from a purely outside behavioral perspective and other people doing attachment research around this time, like John Dalby in psychology, um, looking at attachment again from a purely behavioral side. What motivated you to see what was going on in the brain or with hormones? Well, it it was kind of a a sequence of events, some of them quite accidental. Um, I was, at the time that I really got deep into this topic, 
it was about 1979, and I was a faculty member at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. And one of my colleagues there, another biologist, came to me one day and asked me to help him because he was studying a little rodent called the prairie vole. And he was convinced, based on unbelievable as it sounds, 25 years of data that he had collected in the field under natural conditions year-round daily sometimes three times a day, he would look for these animals to see who they were with. And what he found was that this particular small rodent, a little bit bigger than a house mouse, was living in lifelong pairs. And therefore, what we humans would call, they were showing monogamy. And this is before the DNA fingerprint was possible. Uh, but he was so carefully tracking them that he assumed, and we were wrong, of course, he assumed that they were would be exclusively mating with whoever they lived with in a nest, especially since they were living there their whole lives. And if we brought them into the laboratory, even took little cages and tested them in the field, um, they would repel strangers of both sexes. They were aggressive to strangers. But when we really looked more carefully, we discovered that what we were calling monogamy in those days, it was assumed to be sexual monogamy, sexual exclusivity. Well, that wasn't happening at all. The animals were actually mating with strangers, and then they would turn around and attack them. So <laughs> this got really complicated, but something was going on. There were two parts of the story. First, why? what was making them stay together? What in the world? What kind of physiological, biological glue would cause a small rodent to spend its whole life with its partner? How did they find a partner? Who was that partner? Um, it was never a family member. They were absolutely incest avoidant, and that was a kind of shock too. And we tried to bring them into the lab and see if we could in some way offer them them the opportunity to mate with a family member, a father, a brother, and so forth. No way. They they knew exactly somehow what they were doing, but they had become attached, we discovered, by having sex with each other. So they were incest avoidant, and also they didn't have the capacity to reach puberty without exposure to a stranger. This has some interesting human implications. But so what happened was I kept watching them and thinking about this. And as I've said, now we're looking at well over 40, almost 45 years. I've been kind of mentally trying to understand this. But right off the bat, I realized this couldn't be ordinary learning. Okay, it just didn't make sense, at least not with the theories we had at that time. And it had to be 
something inside of the animal, it had to have a physiology. And when I suggested this to other zoologists, they literally laughed at me, literally said, that's crazy. One, one well-known biologist friend of mine, uh, who's no longer with us, said, um, that's crazy. She said, monogamy is a, I don't know what she thought it was, some kind of evolved lifestyle. But it 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 just they, they were just separate worlds. The world of ecology and evolution was separate at that point from most physiological ideas. The only idea that was around really was the notion of androgens causing hierarchies. That was about it in terms of the crossover. So suddenly I realized, oh, this is, other people think it's crazy. It must be important and interesting. And I've kind of used that principle throughout my career. If I found something that I knew was real, I was certainly not going to let anybody just tell me it couldn't happen, that it was impossible. So it began... When you find something new like that, you're motivated to find an explanation, but it, it sounds like in biology, it could be ultimate, which is to say you tell a grand evolutionary story about yeah. why this evolved and what were the different pressures that led to that behavior That's emerging. precisely the way people were thinking. Uh-huh. Um, and the... A social biology, E.O. Wilson's book came out, I believe, in 1975. And he had brought the concept of social behavior front, front and center. He certainly wasn't the first, but he did a beautiful book that people could understand. And so evolution was now part of sociality, but um, we we should go back and look. I don't think there was hardly any physiology in that book, if at all. Possibly a mention of androgens, okay? Sex hormones, maybe. Um, so we were, it, it was a barren field, which is opportunity, but also a bit daunting because you have to figure everything out yourself. So we started by determining what would bring the female of this species into puberty, because they didn't have, this was unbelievable, they didn't have a cycle, an estracycle, as it was assumed all other species of rodents and even humans have. So what was going on there? Well, the answer, quite straightforward, is as long as they stayed in the family, there were actually pheromonal suppressive influences, more than just odors, lots of things probably. And that kept the female, young females, and we also saw this happening in the males too, which was really interesting, so these animals were being kept in this suspended state. And what happened instead of reaching puberty on their own and starting their own families, they stayed as helpers at the nest. Alloparents is the word that's used. So that was 
very interesting. How could that happen? You know, why? At that point, I assumed, based on the literature, and I would say everybody else pretty much would have agreed, that puberty was something started by an internal clock, a kind of ticking clock that was based on the maturity of the gonads in both males and females. Well, Prairie Falls hadn't read that book. They didn't know they were supposed to do that. And they stayed in a prepubertal state as long as they stayed in the family. And that included the males too. And it's more challenging for males because it takes about 65 days for a male to create a full sperm cycle, at least in prairie bulls. I think in humans, the timing might be different, but it's in that neighborhood. So you can't decide today to become mature and just do it. You have to plan ahead. But these little males were what they were doing, actually never published this study, what they were doing is they were kind of running up to puberty with a bunch of hormonal changes and then going back. They stayed, they went to a lower state, so they got almost to puberty. And then they kind of regressed and were suppressed by being in the family. It turned out both mom and dad were capable of doing that kind of suppression to them. So they were um, obligatory helpers. They were kept in this non-reproductive state until they left home. They had to leave home and or sneak out and meet kind of Romeo and Juliet style. They would meet another um another animal of the opposite sex and be in the presence of that animal long enough to trigger what we know is an LH surge, a, a hormonal surge that starts puberty. And then they had trouble if they tried to go home. So they sort of would run off with these strangers. Um, and within 24 hours, the females had come from being totally suppressed to being fully reproductive and in estrus. It's amazing. And so then they would mate, and only after they mated did they make a commitment to the other animal. This pair bond that we later studied was due. This attachment wasn't instant. So they could go out sort of go out to a bar, so to speak, have a have a drink, but not commit unless they had sex. And that was mind-blowing. So I thought, oh, my goodness. Well, <laughs> that means that something very specific to sexual interactions is the trigger that's moving them out of an immature state to puberty. With the benefit of hindsight, it makes sense that the animal wouldn't waste energy on pubertal development until it finds an eligible mate. But then the question becomes, why don't other species have that waiting period? Yeah, good. That question I wouldn't begin to answer, but we know that in mammals, the other model is predominant. 
So animals go through puberty, almost every species, except these highly social mammals like prairie voles. And there are some other examples, including canids and certain monkeys and so forth. So it's not just the voles. In fact, it's probably humans too, okay? So we have a social regulation of reproduction that's very well described now, but didn't people didn't even think about it in the time when I was starting this work. Um, so I would, every time I found something in the prairie bowl, I kept thinking I'm kind of going nuts here because we know so much about, we thought, we knew so much about reproductive biology and what's happening with these little rodents. Why aren't they following the rules? Why? What's going on here? Because really very naively, I think, biologists at least thought that there were general patterns and that if you studied one or two species, let's say humans and rats, that should be quite sufficient to tell you the basic rules. In fact, people wouldn't even get federal funding if they worked with too many other species. It was called stamp collecting. And one of my colleagues was accused of doing too many different species. And I was thinking, wow, yeah, okay, if they're all the same, that might make sense but they weren't the same. The ones that were social, and I, I have to probably later explain what I mean by social, the social species were rather different. They had a whole different biology. Now, it works the usual explanation that people use as well. One strategy works under one set of environmental demands and another strategy under another. So there's some very famous research on puberty in humans in which, and you can now help me here, I, I'm not an expert on this, haven't read it in a while, but if the father or a male is present in the household, that can alter the, the agent which puberty occurs in the girls. And that, I think it was... It was if a stepfather is present compared to a biological father, then yes, puberty is faster. I'm not sure what happens, though, if it's a single mother, because then you'd have competing hypotheses of does the stepfather, right. because it's a strange male, like with with no sh shared DNA, does that trigger earlier puberty or does it delay puberty further because it's still a yeah. father figure in the house? Well, and a stepfather is a very complex, we're on to your field, not mine, but a stepfather is a very complex stimulus mm -hmm. because some stepfathers are very supportive of their, of their adopted or stepchildren and others are antagonistic. So a biologist looking at a stepchild relationship would say, well, it's not in his good interests as a male to take care of that offspring because it doesn't carry his biological, his DNA. Um, and that's, a, I would say, a parochial point of view, implying that the only thing that matters is your immediate um, relative or your 
inclusive, you know, your your fitness, your direct fitness, then these fields, this whole issue about what it means to be a parent is still not really fully settled, I think. It's still something people are are mulling over because if you look at the family as only one male and one female, then it's very narrow. But if you say, look, I'm part of an extended family, I'm part of a, of a species, then it, this blurs these, these lines. But the prairie vole had, had this worked out, the species, this little rodent, had this worked out to a very fine level of, of discrimination. So they were using the stimuli um, that were available to them, which were strangers, strangers more than just strange odor. It's actually, a, we showed this in 1981. It was a release of norepinephrine and other hormones in the olfactory bulb and in the brain. So a stranger or the odor of a stranger started a cascade. And for the prairie vole, that was puberty. So that took away for me some of these very unanswerable questions, the the why questions, and got us to the how questions. So the, as you alluded to earlier, the why questions are what we call ultimate, or what Tinsberg Tin, Tinbergen called ultimate answers, and the how questions proximate answers. And I think I'm a proximate thinker primarily. When I look at a problem, I want something that I can determine the answer to in my lifetime. I don't have to worry about evolutionary time. So anyway, um, <clears throat> we came upon a very interesting model. And then in that process realized as I had mentioned, that sex was the critical activity. It wasn't just spending time with the stranger. That would not cause them to reach puberty. And once they reached puberty, they were probably going to be excluded from the family. Most of the time, the young pubertal male or female was going to be pushed out of the family or drawn out by the stranger, okay, which is different. But because these animals are not very aggressive to family members, so they really wouldn't have come down too hard on a, in fact, we tried to study this on a, a female that had, shall we say, a one night stand, okay? And then does she get to come home or not? Um, it, if she stayed away long enough to get pregnant, which could take, as I've told you, the beginning of it could start within 24 hours, she probably did not, in almost all cases, did not get to stay within the family. There were exceptions. We were, we were able to say exactly which animals my collaborators, this amazing guy, his name is Lowell Gadsden, Lowell was tracing every individual in large, a creature to see who was who and who they stayed with. So we knew we weren't just guessing, which prior to that, I must say, most of the research had been 
based on anthropomorphic human guesses about who was staying with who, who was the father of the offspring. We, mm-hmm. we were able, took another 10 years almost, but so DNA fingerprints became available in 1985. And we literally rushed out to try to do them in nature. That was hard, but even in the lab, it wasn't too easy in those days to set up for a molecular biology lab. But uh, we got it to work, and the animals were, if given a choice, they would mate with more than one male. Females would have more than one male partner sexually but not socially so they if if they usually took the male they had mated first with but once they had picked a partner that was the animal they lived with and that's probably what was going on in nature too they were taking a they were making a choice it wasn't a super educated choice it was probably based on who they had sex with and but that meant that something about sexual activity was pushing these animals into a different physiological state, including starting well, actually, they induced ovulation, induced pregnancy, but it also induced a social preference. Um, and that there's another backstory which is not in the paper I sent you, but which is really how I I was able to figure this out in the context of a hormone called oxytocin. And it was it was based on the fact it's a side story, but it's kind of interesting to me. I was teaching medical students at the, the early part of my career. And the medical, the reason Uh, what I was supposed to teach them was human sexuality. And the whole idea was these people were going to be doctors. They were going to have to deal with other humans, other bodies. They had to get over their, any kind of cultural prohibition they had about asking personal questions, including questions about sex. So we, this is not started by me. This was in the medical school curriculum when I got there. Um, the idea was we would sort of bombard them with sexual stimuli. Now, in 1970, pornography, if it existed, wasn't easily obtained. It existed, but it wasn't easily obtained. Uh, movies with naked people were considered pretty rare. Um, the pornography industry hadn't merged with uh, mainstream uh, entertainment. So what we had instead were medical movies to show them. And one of those was based on a, was done in Norway, I believe. And it was a film of a woman who was stimulating herself to orgasm. And she was alone in this film, but she happened to be lactating. And at the point that she reached orgasm, milk spurted out of her breasts. This was in the movie. And I I saw that movie 
which I frankly, I would never have seen if I hadn't been teaching this course. And I thought, oh, well, we already knew. That's one thing we knew. Uh, the milk ejection reflex is based on oxytocin. So I knew that from that, and that was 1974 when I taught that course. So when I saw the prairie, that the prairie voles had to mate, the first thing that came to my mind was oxytocin. Okay, if they are releasing oxytocin as humans do, and there's a good chance they were, then this, in fact, they may, we learned, later found that prairie voles had like four to 10 times more oxytocin than most other species. So they were releasing a lot of oxytocin. Um, this might be in sort of very gross terms, the glue that caused the male and female to stay together. So I then spent the next 40 odd years following that, that hormone and its functions. And, and uh, for better or worse, I was lucky because a lot of other people got interested. And so it's, it's a big project to prove something like that. And many, many really excellent scientists were involved who did this. We gave them the bulbs at first because you couldn't buy them. We had to catch them and clean them up to bring them in the lab because they all had little mites and things on them um, and parasites. There weren't, there weren't easy animals to work with, but they... Um, they just were great subjects because their whole life in a laboratory was focused on on other animals. And so the environment was not that important to them as long as we would give them the proper food and a place with a little bedding, they, they seemed pretty happy. They were very happy, I think. It was, there were no hawks or weasels eating them. So we were able to do all these studies over a period. And now it's ongoing. There are, somebody did a survey, and it was, I don't think I sent it to you, but someone wrote a kind of biography, one of my former students, and she claimed, I believe, that there were four full studies in, I guess, PubMed when I started, four total. In, and then by the time... She did her count. It was in the 600, 700 range. So it's a, pop it's a popular creature, even though you cannot go to a commercial um, breeder even today and get access to them. You kind of have to get them from somebody who already has them and deal with all the complexity of a, of a real animal. Anyway. And up until that point, endocrinologists researching sex were only looking at sex hormones like testosterone and estrogen. Absolutely. That was, and that wasn't very satisfying because they weren't finding, okay, take humans. They were stripping humans through medical procedures of their ovaries or their testes, and sometimes even the adrenal gland, and still humans were capable of at least reaching orgasm, okay? Their sexual motivation varied, and this depended on the person and the study, 
varied according to um, their sex steroids, basically, probably androgens and females. Well, it's complicated. I won't go into that right now, but their androgens are converted to estrogens and it's estrogen that seems to be the most behaviorally active molecule. So anyway, the field was a mess and still is, frankly. I'm sure you've discovered this if you've tried to find simple explanations for human sexual behavior or puberty or whatever, because it's not just steroids. The steroid hormones were actually they were discovered later than oxytocin, but um, oxytocin was a kind of hypothetical hormone from the pituitary gland. So what they did initially is they just ground up pituitaries and used them to do things like um, um, increase the speed of labor, usually in domestic animals. And then in 1952 and 53, someone identified the structure of oxytocin and then vasopressin, the two related molecules. And so it became possible to synthesize them and they became medicine almost overnight. Steroid hormones were running on a whole different time scale. So the first steroid proof of steroid molecules as chemicals was in the 1920s, I believe. And, but they're still extremely complicated to understand because these molecules are, they're very uh, plastic and variable and can be remodeled um, depending on where they're made in the body. And so, is hard to make strong statements about things like testosterone levels, for example, how those then relate to, let's say, sex drive. Mm -hmm. it, there's a relationship, I'm sure there is, but it's, it's harder to pin down than it, you would think after all these years, 100 right. years. If you start with your why question before figuring out your how, let's take orgasm and as an example. You might think your why is, well, if it promotes sexual activity, then it increases the likelihood that you reproduce successfully. And all of this leads to thinking that the how is sex hormones, but then restarting, realizing the how is actually oxytocin. If you still have that sex drive, even when you're castrated, then does it force you to recreate a new why story centered around social attachment? Well, um, it's rare enough to, yeah, yes. The answer I would say is yes. It does. It does. And what it does is say there are two driving forces in life. One is reproduction, reproducing your genetic heritage to another generation. The other is survival. And the way I learned it, survival is the first law of nature. You can't reproduce if you aren't alive. So we, but they're so intertwined and a lot of times people don't really think deeply about what the two might mean okay what does it mean to survive uh, because simple survival 
just staying alive is not the same thing as reproduction or thriving. Ideally, one would like to not just survive, but to have kind of an optimal outcome. But actually, our understanding of human behavior is getting pushed, I think, appropriately more and more in the direction of trying to figure out what is optimal. And optimal, that's a human anthropomorphic term, but it's um, it has meaning to our lives. So you can survive with a little bit of food, a little bit of protection, a little bit of housing. You can live on the streets of Los Angeles. You've been there. You know that there are people living who are just barely surviving. Um, and then there are other people up the hill in Beverly Hills in L.A., who are not just thriving, but living in extreme states of opulence and luxury, all those people technically are making, have sort of the same capacity, hypothetically, to move to their genes forward in time or forward to a new generation. I, As I say, I'm not very good with um, really explaining evolution I keep wondering if maybe I had, you know, just have another hundred years to figure that one out or another 50 years because we're, our ideas of what the purpose of evolution are constantly shifting. So, you, you know, there was this thing called a group, what's it called? Inclusive, well, there's inclusive fitness. There's a when I entered the field, it was assumed that everything was about the individual. Then a group of people, somewhat influenced by E.O. Wilson, but more by um, David Sloan Wilson, who's at Binghamton, um, and I don't think related to E.O. Wilson, had promoted the idea of group selection. Mm -hmm. So once you get into that, it's like mind bending. It sort of works for prairie voles, okay? Instead of taking care of yourself and having your own babies, you can benefit, and this is Trevor's idea, you can benefit by inclusive fitness if you're helping to raise animals that hypothetically have some of your genes, like your nephews or your brothers or your right. sisters i'd sacrifice my life for two brothers or eight cousins yes that's i think that exactly. was wilson that's well is that wilson or trivers but i i don't know forgotten but um it doesn't answer the question of the how it doesn't even help me too much to figure out the how question start starting to ask those questions but or maybe it could. I don't know if it's I'm trying to think if there's anyone in science who's really blended those two effectively. Maybe you know. Um, it's it's non-trivial because a lot of it, uh, there's a chap at Harvard, Nowak's, he's argued uh, mathematically, Martin Nowak's, I don't happen to have met him, but he's argued that this is a mathematical problem, right? It's a 
it's a matter of statistics, whether and sociality, I believe. And he wrote papers with Wilson, with Theo Wilson, arguing that sociality wins over uh, strategies that are only individualistic. You should meet him if you haven't and see uh-huh. if you see if- I've, I've heard of his work. It, it seems to, to parallel some things you find in game theory, like with prisoner's yeah. dilemma type games, exactly. pro-sociality turns out to be an optimal strategy. Well, and I believe, I'll tell you my personal perspective on this, which is more and more becoming a blend of social and physiological um, processes. So I, in that paper I gave you, I coined a term sociostasis. Mm -hmm. And my argument there is that one of the things that we missed as we started to study the physiology of survival and stress, stress became a big field. Hundreds of thousands of people study biological stress, but they almost entirely focus on the individual. Oh, leaving out the fact, and it is a fact, that we have embedded in our individual physiology a set of processes of which oxytocin is probably the key one that uh, encourages sociality. That's why the worst punishment is to be alone in solitary confinement. That's worse than death because people go mad. Now that, and I don't even know how we get away with doing that as a culture. But uh, there are reasons, obvious reasons, someone might be dangerous or whatever. But the brain does not work in the same way if we're isolated. And that's because we have this embedded physiology that I think has somewhat been missed. It was missed in part because oxytocin was left off the table until well, about 40 years ago. Does oxytocin relate to status tracking at all? I'm familiar with some other animal research looking at serotonin, and Um, they've identified a connection between serotonin levels and where you fall in the the relative hierarchy of your- That's a super good question. You'll have to check that literature. I'll, I'll look too, but it's not one I would follow tightly because it, takes me, slides me over into this world of, of uh, the why versus the how. But mm-hmm. um, there is a lot written now about in-group, out-group uh, constructs. And we can talk about that because I think it was it's a mistakenly been described. I'll explain why. But there's also... Um, Social salience might relate to your to answer your question. So individuals with oxytocin may or may not be more overtly social, but they may be tuned to social cues. Cues, the eyes reading the mind in the eyes. It's what uh, Simon Baron Cohen called that. He's a pretty well-known developmental social psychologist too believe Cambridge. Um, 
And that's part of, that's an, in my mind, that's a readout of the social stasis system. Based on what you know about oxytocin and parental care, does it seem to be more like a squeaky wheel gets the grease where perhaps if you, if you have a sickly child that's struggling more, there's more oxytocin there to, to like fill that gap versus more oxytocin for the childs that, that are thriving the most? I don't know. Um, probably would depend a lot on the type of parent. Mm -hmm. If parent had, was very empathetic, uh, they might attend more to the sick child if they mm -hmm. were, and, and that empathy would also extend into this construct of social sociostasis, because if you're empathetic, that system is starting to sort of dominate. If you're more individualistic, and this there is a little bit of data to support this, um, then you have a different physiology, a physiology that um, is at least partially dependent on another hormonal pathway that involves this related molecule vasopressin. So you the part of the problem in so, when social psychologists got interested in oxytocin, they bought the story hook, line, and sinker. They swallowed it and they left the rest of the physiology out of it. And that is not how oxytocin works. It's part of a system. And it's a system that has its own counterweights built into it based on evolution. And this evolution I'm talking about is the origins of these molecules. So it's not the evolutionary theory that we've kind of alluded to before. It's the origins of molecules. Well, vasopressin is a more primitive, more ancient molecule than oxytocin. It evolved, vasopressin evolved at least 100 million years earlier. Oxytocin came along. So there's vasopressin and vasopressin-like molecules in all vertebrates from the most primitive um, fish-like, pre-fish pre kinds of creatures. Um, and of course, we have plenty of vasopressin, but as I see it, to make this simple to understand, as the social, as mammals became more social, we sort of added in another layer of, of process with a more social, selectively social piece to it. So you can't just say social, non-social, because fish are social. If you've ever been scuba diving, you know that there are these pairs of fish that run around together or schools of fish. But selective sociality is requires a more a little bit more complex neurochemistry that oxytocin or oxytocin-like molecules are part of. I suspect that I might fall into that camp of social psychologists who bought the very publicized story and, and missed some of the details. So let, let's see if I can explain what I think is going on based on what I've read and then correct me where I go wrong. <clears throat> so I've considered oxytocin and vasopressin to work 
in tandem in promoting care behavior. And I've been thinking about oxytocin as the pro-social type care, so directed towards the in-group, and mm-hmm. then vasopressin as explaining that selective sociality. So in voles, for example, right. becoming aggressive towards strangers after mating with their pair. So oxytocin on the pro-social care side and vasopressin on the defensive aggression side that indirectly promotes care. That's my perspective. But that was not the perspective of the first people who entered the field. I don't know mm-hmm. them personally, but someone like uh, Karsten de Drew from the Netherlands made a big splash by saying oxytocin was not a hormone of prosociality, be- at least, or that it could also cause out it could cause outgroup aggression. And he was basing this on giving probably pretty high levels of oxytocin to humans intranasally. But I looked through his papers and I'm still not sure that he's changed his story. I think he left the topic, but he never mentioned vasopressin. And he also, if he had read the Prairie Falls research, which came out first, the first paper showing vasopressin played a role in rejecting strangers. That was 1993, and it was not an obscure paper. It was in Nature, and it's been thousands. Had, I don't know, almost 2,000 references, so it's not obscure, okay? But the guy who was trying to make the story, and it kind of feels like perhaps trying to get publicity around that story, wanted to say oxytocin is not the love hormone, okay? It's now, I say that too, it's not the love hormone, but it is a piece of a process that allows us to tolerate others. And there's some kind of dynamic balance going on here, one that can change over time and that can be changed by early life experience which is really critical to this field. I know you're interested in long-term longitudinal development. And the problem with development is that quite possibly the most important events are really, really early. Some of them may be prenatal and pretty impossible to to directly measure. But... What happens, I think, now I'm making my version of the story. My thinking is that life is full of various rheostats and tuning devices. And oxytocin and vasopressin are particularly good at this. And because they work in as a a team, they can allow us to be adaptive. So you can't just say, hey, it's a beautiful world. Everything's fabulous. I can walk in front of cars. No one will hit me. I can do whatever I want to do. It doesn't work that way. We have to have awareness. Um, But it turns out, and there's quite a bit of data on this from including game theory, as you mentioned, that would suggest that if we have some sense of other, we may be 
better at projecting the future. And so we've probably got some pretty nifty systems inside of our nervous system and our autonomic system. This is not restricted to the brain. This is a system that has a brain in it, but it's got this vagus nerve, which has multiple branches running throughout the body, tuning every organ. So if you're in an optimal situation and suddenly things go bad, let's say a war, you can't stop to digest. You can't stop to even go to the bathroom. You have to stay in a defense mode for some undetermined period of time, right? And the body has to do that trick, no matter how nicely reared you were by loving parents and so forth. You've got to be able to make those switches because, and here we go back to the, the why and how question, the ancestors who could do that switch survived better, we think, than those who could not. So I believe if Martin Noex's equations are correct, or E.O. Wilson's theories are correct, or David Sloan Wilson, we are looking at a process that was biased in humans, modern humans, towards sociality. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't have tall buildings. We wouldn't have new inventions if we were just all individualistic in our approach. So something's going on. I'm not the one who will ever figure out what that something is. I'll be very interested to know. But it's it probably is a, a mathematical equation over the history of modern humans. And maybe it's changing in before our eyes, but but the way it can be changed is through these molecules and their receptors. The molecules themselves can change, but particularly uh, dialable, tunable are the receptors. And the receptors for oxytocin and vasopressin are variable, they're polymorphisms, but they are also tunable. And that's mm -hmm. what makes them really interesting. And our Vold studies, which uh, the most important of which was probably published in 2019, and these are done with Jessica Conley, my collaborator at UVA. And what Jess did is she designed a kind of biomarker approach that could be done from DNA and saliva even to that told her whether there was epigenetic up or down regulation of the oxytocin receptor. And that is a pretty good indicator, at least in the voles, of whether the receptor itself is up or down regulated. So we can measure not only the epigenetics, but also the actual receptor in, you know, in animal models. Um, and here's what's neat. This is, this is in our paper, Perkabyle, Alison Perkabyle is the first author. Um, and that what, what came out of that was that in the first few days of life, prairie voles go into a de novo automatic uh, methylation. They start to methylate 
the gene for the oxytocin receptor. And if they have a high level of social experience, they do less of that. So they're actually programmed to tune down that system, but social behavior and high nurture from their parents can change that trajectory. And so as whether that's going on in humans, we'd have to ask Jess, she's just trying to understand this in humans, but whether the things go on in the first week of prayerful life equate to the things that go on in the first whatever weeks or months of human life, I can't say. Mm -hmm. But I'm guessing there, I think if I were designing this system, I would have left as much of it as possible to be retuned so that the offspring that have the capacity to for change would have the advantage over those that were hardwired. So a hardwired system is great if nothing's changing in the environment, but that's never the case, right? So it so, at least involves early in life with nurture then your oxytocin receptors are set up such that you can benefit more from it. And if in absence of nurture, you don't see those effects. Not as much, probably. You go into something that's more genetically determined. Mm -hmm. And is this like a critical period where after a certain point in development? Maybe, maybe. Mm -hmm. It's harder. That's the big question, isn't it? How much can we now adjust this system in later life. What Jess tells me, what Conley tells me is that she thinks there are essentially phenotypical patterns. So some people have a lot of methylation, some have a lot less. It can be, she's been studying it with her postdoc, Katie Crow. They were studying it across a menstrual cycle. And even within a single cycle, you can see little blips in the methylation. It's not static. So it's got a hormonal backstory that's to be determined. Um, but it's you, someone with a methylation of, well, make some irrelevant numbers up like 100, which would be low, or 500. They're not going to switch places. Okay. There's, there's, it's not predetermined. It has some flexibility, but it's also got a lot of, of either prenatal. What I don't think Jess has done, we should do this, is the twin studies, even twin studies, as you probably know, are not perfect in the sense that lots of different things have happened from in utero forward, even in identical twins, one might be on top, one on the bottom, one has a higher, more blood supply or something of that nature. But um, we have some data, there's a strong familial pattern. So there's some destiny here, but there's also some remarkable flexibility. And that's, I think, encouraging we're not stuck necessarily just with what we were given as a genetic pack package. And in fact, there are even 
among these genetic packages, there are variants that have been discovered by other people that are more tunable than others. So some people have a pattern that's pretty stable probably, and others one that can do this. Um, what I don't know, and I need to go back and see if the literature answers this, is whether it's possible to then predict more of the human condition from that information. That would be something that should be done in these longitudinal studies that are ongoing. Here's a related multi-part question. When you have these intervention studies, whether in humans or other animals, where you see something like you give, you administer oxytocin and then people report more empathy or more care behavior, presumably that doesn't last lifelong. It wears off at some point. So how long does it last and what happens in the body as it wears off? And then second, that once it wears off, it presumably you're returning to some baseline level of oxytocin. Oh. So is, is it these uh, epigenetic effects in early life that you're talking about that might set whatever that baseline becomes? Yes. Okay. You're asking the most interesting and important questions, aren't you? What, how much flexibility do we really have? If, if you buy for a moment my hypothesis, which is that oxytocin's at the center of this social system, then the next question is how much can we change it? Your question, as that's the question that was there when I started in the field, even 55, 58 years ago, whatever. Um, so it probably has several answers. First, one thing we are seeing is that males and females are not identical in their flexibility. Um, and I can't make a really big, broad statement, but in general, it looks like early oxytocin, at least from outside, has more impact on males than females. The male may need and possibly early nurture, this is speculation, has more impact on those individuals with XY chromosomes than XX. Now, it is not actually helping this field that we are no longer comfortable <laughs> with talking about male and female as binary uh, distinctions. They never were binary. They were always a continuum. So if you look at early life experience, early life steroids, we know, for example, that human males have a period of androgen probably priming, a period after birth when androgen levels become quite high. Those are variable. That's extremely variable. We don't know what controls it. It would be amazing to see if we could find that out. Something does. It's not just accidental. So let's say, for example, high nurture might actually, this is just hypothetical, might decrease testosterone in early life. A child that was particularly well-nurtured 
might not have as much in that first three months, as much androgen. Mm -hmm. Now, does that have a consequence for the rest of the person's life? If you, by the way, run, I'm charging you, my, my honorarium for answering all these questions is that if you find the answer to them, you share it with me, because these are really interesting questions that I don't think anybody has done longitudinal work on, possibly with the exception of some rodents, but I don't even think there has been done. And I'll tell you why in a minute, but not just the usual, well, nobody thought of it, but there are other reasons it will be hard to do. But I think, at least based on our work in voles where we've manipulated oxytocin, Oxytocin in early life is part of the rheostat that determines its own receptor and its own self-production. And what I can't be sure about, this is really interesting and important, is whether it's negative feedback or positive feedback. Oxytocin is one of, if not the only hormone that has, at least in adults, positive feedback. So a woman in labor, given a little ex, extra oxytocin, not too much, just right, will actually produce more oxytocin later. They used to do this in women in labor with nipple stimulation. I don't know if it's used much now, but or exogenous, small doses of exogenous hormone. So if there's positive feedback, and there's a good chance there is, then good mothering would actually increase oxytocin and its receptor. The whole system would be tuned up. Vasopressin is not as tunable as oxytocin, I believe. That's guessing. I think it's more um, predetermined, more related to these basic survival processes of individualistic survival. And in that case, Maybe it's more likely to be a fixed variable, not totally fixed, but less variable. But these are the questions that these can be answered even with current technology. If the samples are there and people have the forethought to keep these samples uh, over time and then start to take into account what the behavioral patterns are that come out later. Because humans do have what we call personality, right? They have patterns. This was determined by Chess and Thomas in the 1950s, I think. Individuals who are impulsive have a pattern of showing that across their lives. But what we don't know is how much of that can be regulated by these early life experiences, how much of it can be recalibrated later? I don't know. Um, I think some. I think some of it can be, re I'll use the word calibrated again. I don't want to call it restored because what's right for one person in one time is not necessarily right for the whole species. And that's what's made this field so difficult to work on, because here we have something that's not 
set to be constant. And almost never in psychology or even in behavioral work in animals do we have the con a, a long enough time span and enough data to even see what a curve looks like, much less say what's influencing it. But um, you know, I know you're interested in this, and I think this is doable even with biomarker approaches, which are never perfect, but start to give you hints. How do these interaction effects play out? In, in some of your early prairie bull research, or may, maybe it was some of the later studies, you mentioned that low levels of oxytocin promote care behavior in voles, but high levels, and you believe through an indirect pathway of vasopressin, then promote defensive aggression. Well, is that right? I think that we have empirical data that support that, but it's far from complete. In other words, what we what can we do? We give a so-called dose response. So take animals that we think are all sort of the same and give them extra oxytocin. Um, and based on the fact that that curve is almost never linear, it's almost always curvilinear, meaning it's the Goldilocks effect, right? A little bit or too much are not ideal. We want the just right amount. Biology works that way, but science has to go back and say, whoa, what's the right amount? You know, prairie voles, the thing about prairie voles that's interesting is that the babies are attached to the mother by milk teeth, little front teeth that look like a clamp. And so then the mom's nipple will be there. And she, they don't, they have to kind of let go. If you try to pull them off, it'll actually hurt the mother and the baby because they're so tight, those teeth. They're like mm -hmm. two little, very sharp and very tight clamps. And so um, the babies can control mom in a way that a rat or mouse cannot. A rat and mouse, mm -hmm. if mom wants to leave the baby, she just walks away. Uh, prairie voles, they're stuck to her, and they will follow running after her, a whole stream of them holding on with these teeth. And part of that is to give them access to her, but it means that, that when she's present and lets them get onto the nipple or onto her chest, she can't get rid of them. But new, new animals, if there's a new litter, the new litter has to fight its way to get to the nipple. And actually the milk teeth fall out as they get older so that the, and this allows the new babies to get access to the mom. Uh, there's, there are parallels in human behavior there too, because if, there's, if babies are too close together, they don't get the full resource, in this case, milk from the mom. Um, anyway, I don't know if we're going in a direction that's helpful to you or not. We've covered a lot of ground. Certainly. So th for this, this sort of pair bonding be between, not romantic pair bonding, but um, mother-infant bonding, um, yeah. is 
that's mediated by oxytocin. Is that through smell? Oh, well, actually, in the prairie um, the mother will accept any baby. She's not selective. Does she and become now, selective at a later point after um, an initial bond? She probably recognizes familiar versus unfamiliar. But in prairie voles, it's extremely easy to cross foster. You can just give her some new babies and she'll take them. Um, what she, the only place where she's super selective is in partners, which is very interesting. So other species, that's usually the case too. Uh, rats, mice, the exceptions would start to be monkeys and that varies by species. Uh, there are studies and I'm not gonna be able to tell you which which species are highly selective with babies and which are not. The squirrel monkeys are different from teeny monkeys and new worlds. So new world primates. So I can't, I'm trying to, I'm trying to access that. I know who did it, Sally Mason um, at, not Sally Mason, Sally um, Mendez and Bill Mason at the University of California. Davis did this work and they found that in some species, mothers are very specific and in some species not. And then field biologists have since, generally you can, you can tell where there's going to be selectivity by looking at the ecology. If there's an ecology of, well, okay, sociality, high sociality, everyone's accepted sort of uh, um, mixed families getting mixed together, then that kind of sociality will not have select as much selectivity. Humans are kind of on a continuum along this variable. So humans that have been raised in super selective social groups, some um, culturally social will nurse other women's babies. American women, less likely to do that unless they're part of a sort of specifically encouraged to do uh, wet nursing or, or shared alloparenting. I mean, is that just a cultural thing or is it also physiological ability to produce milk for another child unless you're raised in the right culture that promotes that? Right. Good questions, right? So if she if she has enough milk, you'd think it would be okay. And if she has enough resource, and let's say it's we have a lot of this going on in our current culture because a very high percentage of women don't get the ability to nurse their offspring, even those who try very, very hard. In fact, trying may make it worse because it's stressful, okay? If someone says you must breastfeed this baby, that is not necessarily helpful. What's helpful is to support the woman, make her feel safe because oxytocin is responding to threat and challenge and stress. And if we can go into that, that's a very interesting question. And one that gets confused in the literature, but um, 
A, if there's safe stress, like running a marathon or doing something in a group, a team, team sports, actually stress can release oxytocin uh, and be socially beneficial. If the environment is threatening, I interpret that as the vasopressin system really going out of control, then oxytocin, more oxytocin does not fix it. It, it could even make it worse. That's the DeDrew experiment where you give people situations where they're very threatened and then you give them extra oxytocin and they don't get less threatened. They get more threatened. So I again, most of these things I'm saying have not been carefully empirically tested. So <clears throat> maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong. That does get at, at, at a nice paradox uh, that I was going to ask you about, though. So if, if it's a safe stressor, then oxytocin can act as a buffer. But if it's a dangerous stressor that's triggering other hormones, then oxytocin either won't buffer against it or perhaps make it worse. Well, again, we come back to the bigger story. Speculatively. The big story is survival of individuals versus survivals, survival of a larger collective, which could be a mother infant or a group or a pair, right? And in a species generally, or a culture in which we encourage others to be part of the culture, not going off in a room by ourselves, um, voluntarily or, or forced isolation, um, then, you know, it's, it's just different. It's different, and I haven't seen, we just finished a study. One of my students, who's a, actually a, a major in the Air Force, did an amazing study. He found three groups of people to study. One were people with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and they were quite sick. They were in, they were severe, not just garden variety PTSD, but bad enough that the VA, the Veterans Administration, had put them into some kind of therapeutic program. So he was able to get them in that program, follow them through to a little bit more than two weeks of therapy and take blood samples along the way. Those people had super high vasopressin and super low oxytocin. He had two other comparison groups, not since observational research, not an experiment, but the observational groups that he was able to get were people running a 100 kilometer ultramarathon and he followed them through the marathon. So they were trained elite athletes and a group of individuals who had gone into a SWAT team training program, which according to Alex Hunt Horn, Alex Warren, who did this study, is worse than anything he had ever experienced in the military. So they were really put through five days of what they call hell week. Their oxytocin and vasopressin levels did not fall. 
they went up, both went up. And these people formed groups. They didn't know each other when they started. They formed teams and mm -hmm. came out of it very well, those who graduated. I don't remember. I need to ask him what happened to those who didn't make it. We need to go back and look at that because those who didn't make it through the program might have been different. The same, the ultramarathoners looked like the SWAT team people. They had more or less equal number, equal values of oxytocin and vasopressin. So I'm drawing little bar diagrams here. Vasopressin was significantly lower than in PTSD and oxytocin significantly higher in both of the other groups. And oxytocin went up during SWAT training and it went up during the marathon but it came back down to more or less where it started. So um, what does this mean? It, it doesn't tell us anything about real causation because we don't know what caused the people who were in the PTSD group to have these super high vasopressin and oxytocin. But if you correlate their self-reported history of trauma the correlation was, I want to say 0 0.7, 0 0.8. It was almost a straight line. More trauma, more vasopressin. More trauma, less oxytocin. Now, we don't know. I mean, that's a very gross methodology. You're really asking people to remember their trauma. And that is a psychological construct rather than a real event in most cases. Um, but the people who were in the SWAT train, training had trauma histories too. And there was still a correlation with vasopressin a bit higher, but they weren't off scale. They were survivors. Um, we would call them people who are healthy and self-selected, not your average person goes into SWAT training. Almost all of them were previously military or civilian police first responders. So they were like super, supermen, women and men to start with. Mm -hmm. But so we have a lot of work to do to figure out where this all plays out. But um, I think that we're, we're starting to see a pattern here with a, a abnormal, I don't like that word, but you know what I mean, something off scale, some kind of off scale vasopressin being dangerous. How dangerous. does cortisol connect to this? We have it. It was not different in the three groups. It did go up during the acute stressors and it came back down. In other words, mm -hmm. people going through a non-marathon did show an increase, but not nothing didn't predict. This is the old story here, or the old endocrine story that started with Sellier, and even before that, probably with Walter Cannon, the original people who defined stress as we discuss it. They starting with Sellier, which would be 1930s, Sellier said, oh, there's an adrenal gland in there, and the adrenal gland is the source of stress 
or something like that. He was trying to identify specific molecules, either uh, catecholamines, norepinephrine or epinephrine or cortisol. And that field has gone round and round and round. Um, when it got to the topic of post-traumatic stress disorders, which are arguable terms, of course, um, they found, I suspect what they saw were two groups, a group of people who had high court and a group of people that had low court, but the overall average really has generally not differed from the general population. However, the problem with all of this is that clinical diagnoses like PTSD are of minimal value because they are checklist categories. Um, and something like PTSD is self-report of events, not internal processes. So trauma is a really hard thing to get your hands on because trauma is something that comes from outside and affects the body. And what Selye and people like Selye then, um, Bruce McHugh and George Cruz's people like that were have tried to say as well, there's a distinct physiology for stress. So stress is not the outside event. It's what the body does with it. And that's true. But the problem is that the body can do more than one, has more than one way of dealing with stress. It can become highly mobilized, activated, fight, flight, uh, or it can shut down. And although it has not been done properly, my bet is that the people who are shutting down have less court, that they're the low court group, and the people who are mobilized are high. So what cortisol actually does physiologically is it frees up sugar. It's not a stress hormone in the psychological sense that the early, early pioneers in this field thought it would be. It's a physiological molecule and its effects on behavior are kind of interesting. I don't know if you know what it does. If you give a cortisol-like compound to people, they feel great. They'll go through really? a period sometimes of euphoria. It's used a lot medically. Um, and oh, if you have like poison ivy or certain kinds of immune problems or viruses even where people were trying to use it during the COVID epidemic, they feel a lot better for a couple of days. And generally then they crash. Mm -hmm. Even if you keep the court going or you even elevate it, it doesn't keep working. So by itself, it is not either a biomarker, although it's measured a lot, and it's not a predictor of the kinds of things that the, as I say, the early scientists in this field assumed it would. There was one investigator, um, he's no longer in the field. Uh, his name was Derek Hel Hellhammer, and Derek, Derek 
wanted to take a sample from everybody in the world, he was a big thinker, and try to see if he could predict their capacity to manage, I'll call it challenge, not stress, okay, challenge. Didn't work out. They're still measuring it, but it didn't. It's not a great predictor. Knowing your cortisol level probably won't be very helpful to you. Um, whether knowing oxytocin and vasopressin could be useful, I think it could, but it's going to have to be in the context of early life, the context of what's going on at the moment. You can't stress somebody in an extreme way and take your measurement then because oxytocin is going to go up when they're stressed. So a lot of the field is contaminated by studies where they measured oxytocin, not taking into account the internal state or the degree to which the person had a shift of toward fear or safety. And that's kind of where we're gonna to have to go, I think, to, to make sense of this. I know this is very speculative, but do you sense that oxytocin or really any of these hormone responses to internal states are that? Are they responses to an internal subjective state or do they define what the subjective state is? So like emotions causing hormones or hormones causing emotions or, or maybe some feedback loop of both. It has to be a, a feedback loop, doesn't it? Because mm -hmm. it would be maladaptive kind of by definition if it were static. I think vasopressin's more static than oxytocin, but I can't even prove that. Um, I, I'm basing that on the kind of, again, teleological thinking based on my reading of this oxytocin literature for 40 years, helping to write it. Um, so I think oxytocin's very, very adaptive. So is vasopressin, but vasopressin's adaptive with a strategy that's more individualistic. Mm -hmm. Oxytocin gives us the capacity for social salience. It gives us the capacity, and this is from rats. This is one of the most remarkable studies I've read. They found that oxytocin allowed rats to predict threat more accurately than if they didn't have it. So they put the oxytocin in a part of the brain, I think it's the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, and the, which goes to the lateral septum. It's a little axis associated with predicting threat and having the oxytocin there allowed the rat not just to predict bad things, but also to anticipate what was not bad, was not going to harm you. So the problem with trauma as a concept, it's a big concept right now in psychology. The problem with it is that the event, again, we said this before, it's not the event, it's how the body processes it. And people who are moved into a state of fear process everything with more fear. 
they are more <laughs> apprehensive. You see this all around you. You're okay, you're at Harvard. Um, Harvard acquires students based on their amazing credentials, especially the undergraduates, which is probably a totally different population than graduate school. And those students have lived under threat their whole lives. And I would wager that even though they're exceptional in almost every way, they are probably also under exceptional stress. And the question is, can they accurately predict what's going to happen? Are they going to overestimate the fear factor? Are they going to right. see the world as something they have to be in a state of, of tension and anxiety all the time. I haven't seen any statistics, but if you get bored, you might want to see if you couldn't initiate a study following students going, undergraduates going through Harvard. Mm -hmm. I would wager that if you went to the whatever mental health facility that the undergraduates have access to, you would see a fair amount of anxiety. Oh yeah, much higher than average levels of anxiety. Uh, I would. I think I it's would, near half. Yeah, I would guess, and the reason is obvious. They needed that anxiety; it was adaptive to get them there. But it is maladaptive because it's not accurate. Okay, if it's accurate, it's never maladaptive, I guess. But in this case. They are probably not threatened. The, my, some of my friends have students, have children who've gone to Harvard, and I don't think they were treated worse. In fact, I think they were treated quite well. And I've lectured there years ago. I don't think that it's a harsh environment per se. But the student who walks in there and had to be perfect for the first 18 years of their lives, can't let go of that very easily. And so they overestimate. And if, okay, what, what, what should they do? They should get friends, okay, safe. They should seek safety. Now, if 50%, you're the one who gave me that statistic, if 50% of those kids are not safe, it's going to be tricky to find someone to be friends, bond with, or whatever, who's safer than you are <laughs> in psychological safety, I mean, right? Less threatened. And I don't know when you, um, my guess is if you put two highly threatened people together, it may not necessarily make things better. It still could make, it's still better than isolation, probably, mm -hmm. hopefully, I don't know. And it's quite, a, I mean, the whole idea of college is an interesting experiment in right. itself, but these elite colleges where the kids have gone through a filter that is beyond reason. Mm -hmm. This connects back to that idea of the role status might play because with that earlier serotonin research I was mentioning so serotonin more serotonin reduces anxiety levels and also uh, is 
related to how high or low you are in, in this hierarchy. So if it's more dynamic, then you might predict that the anxiety is beneficial until you get to this safe, secure place um, where your future is looking pretty good, like at Harvard. And then if it was if it was truly dynamic in that way, you would predict anxiety levels go down once you attain the status that you're aiming for. But based on what we're seeing, it seems to be more like a trait-based thing, like you're self-selecting and then you're kind of just that way. And well, or yeah, yeah, I can call it a trait. I, I wouldn't imagine it's genetic. I would mm-hmm. think it has a huge epigenetic component based on expectations if they're first generation, for example. That's a big thing to be the first person in your family that goes maybe to college and certainly to Harvard. So you can't afford to fail, right? You're failing your social group, which is the family or your whoever supported you before. Um, it's not a gift to be in that situation. It's only a gift if the person can find ways to take advantage of that without paying too heavy a price of of just staying in a, what the people in the field call allostatic overload. You know that term where you're basically saying it's more than the system can bear. There's this, I, I like the term allostasis because as two important, homeostasis is trying to adjust around a set point. Allostasis is more dynamic version of that story. Some people say you it's homeostasis too. And the, but the idea is you can vary that set point. And in the more sophisticated versions of allostasis, they'll point out that you also can predict the future. And that's where oxytocin may be really special. And I haven't got my head quite wrapped around how it does this, but it could be that assuming a healthy person, having oxytocin on board might allow you, and it should come from your body. Don't even think about going out and trying to get it given to you because that's not going to be adjustable in the way the body would do it. But let's say you can predict, then you can say, oh, gee, it's okay to cross the street. Or um, think I'll wait till the walk sign, right? And, or it's okay to take a summer off rather than spend the whole summer taking courses so you can get ahead, so you can have get out of college in three years or something of that sort. So we're, we're looking for pathways that allow, that stay within the physiological range that a human can tolerate. And that physiological range is pretty broad and there are certainly people who are literally superhuman because they're in the statistically in upper edge of that range. But you can probably break anybody. 
um, and to set up a system that's designed to do that is, is kind of cruel. It's kind of cruel because they, if they make it, the 50% that make it through without allostatic overload, if there is such a 50%, um, they're special. So they've been filtered and they get to go to Harvard Law, right? Or they get to go to Harvard Med School. But the ones who got through that system, even if they get into Harvard Law or Harvard Med, or where or business on whatever the I don't know if Wall Street still exists, but let's say the Silicon Valley, um, they may be. We don't know, but they could be, if you will, traumatized. They could have gone through a system of threat and danger that was beyond their physiological capacity. And that's what is good. What happens when the oxytocin is exogenous, especially if it's administered intranasally? Like I, I've spoke yeah. with a biologist once who criticized human fMRI studies uh, administering oxytocin intranasally and then watching, like, let's say, empathy areas of the brain light up, saying if it's administered through the nose, then it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, so you can't assume that it's a direct pathway on how it's influencing the brain. What is actually happening? Well, I'm, this is not my area of expertise. I can give you papers and names of people who worked on it. I think at the moment, we're pretty comfortable that it does get into the brain. And there are a couple of reasons for this. First, there's um, the, first, the, the, person, the first author's last name is Martins. I don't know his first name. I think he's from England. They've done a lot of work tracing starting about 220, 2020, tracing fMRI with intranasal. Um, and so I think I, I think people no longer doubt that it gets to the brain. I think it does. Now, does it get to the same areas of the brain that would, the endogenous hormone would reach? Maybe not because the endogenous hormone is coming out through a series of nerves that reach out all over the brain. They go to the cortex, they go to the brainstem, and ox endogenous oxytocin is not a single burst, but it is pulses, and those pulses are well-timed. And so, and they're going on all the time. So it's not just one bolus of molecules. So making a comparison between that and the natural pattern is tricky. Now, the most, the best studied natural release actually done in rats is lactation. And the process that controls lactation is always pulsatile. And it has to be because it's trying to put out enough molecule in a pulse, and they are different distances apart, but let's say minutes apart. And that then has to go to the muscle in the breast that regulates the release of milk, the ejection of milk. 
and milk ejection requires some force. So what the body has done is maximize these pulses. I'm drawing them on my mental screen. That's not the way those and studies that you're talking about with a single bolus of oxytocin were done. So you really can't make too much conclusion. But the other thing that's really interesting is that a group in Japan has discovered that there are specific molecules that carry oxytocin from the general circulation through the blood-brain barrier previously thought not to happen, or at least to happen at the at less than 1% of the hormone. And what happens, those molecules are part of the immune system. And so, and what's happened in this field is there's been a merger of thinking away from psychological constructs to some kind of mixture of um, immune, inflammatory, adaptive processes, because oxytocin's big message is probably its anti-inflammatory capacity. And I've written papers, and I, if I, I send you my CV or something with the mm -hmm. list of papers. Yeah. So I wrote one with uh, one of your colleagues, Marcy Kingsbury, who's at Mass General in Boston. And Marcy is, she carried the heavy lifting on the immune piece of this paper. It talk, what we did is argue that oxytocin was nature's way of dealing with the stress of life. Mm -hmm. But we're talking endogenous oxytocin, not some spritz of something that may or may not get across the blood-brain barrier. So the body, a lactating mother has a leaky system and it and the oxytocin is circulating in her system is also getting into her brain at higher levels than would be normal for mm -hmm. a male non-lactating, whatever. So she's getting more. And there is a beautiful paper from this group in Japan, Yamamoto, and uh, Higashita are the authors. And it's in one of the nature papers, nature communications, nature journals. And it goes through the why the immune system and maternal behavior are one system. So mm -hmm. when you start to think this way, you're no longer going to be satisfied with one molecule and one function. It's wrong. The only way that the system can work and the way it evolved is to take a, a whole lifespan, multiple lifespans, evolutionary history, back to the beginning of time, life on Earth, when we had to deal with oxygen. That's the argument that I made in the paper with Marcy. It's in the Philosophical Proceedings of the Royal Society of London B. Love that. Love the title. Catchy. It's the oldest journal in the world. Uh, oldest scientific journal. So that argument we made there, and this was based on my thinking, is that there wouldn't be life on Earth if there weren't oxygen. 
but oxygen's a heavy burden. And almost every disease, you can look this up for yourself, almost every disease we know of right now has been has a, is implicated or over reactions of the immune system, too much inflammation, too much oxidation, burning, in the sense we're burning our brains up. And oxytocin's a fire extinguisher. And that's it's a fire extinguisher that has the message of safety and the message of other, safe other, not just any old other, right? Mm -hmm. Safe other. I'd like to close asking you about oxytocin's role in puberty and sex drive risk-taking. The risk-taking element is something that my lab studies and we've, or we're in the process of connecting it to testosterone. And there's mm -hmm. a whole bunch of, I think, converging lines of evidence from both human and animal research on how testosterone promotes sex drive, but also risk-taking and the risk-taking element can be explained by reward sensitivity, which also connects back to the sex drive idea, but also decreased anxiety. And then connecting this to something else I know about in humans, not adolescents, but once fathers or once males become a father, testosterone levels go down. And the evolutionary theory behind this is supposed to be that it reduces aggression and it promotes parental care, but parental care is in the domain of oxytocin more so than reduced testosterone. So that's a whole bunch of stuff mingled together. But one question we could start with is, is that reduced testosterone explained by increased oxytocin levels? Possibly. It's certainly correlated. Mm -hmm. This was worked on in Canada, first by Anne Story, and she was... People, she couldn't even get the paper published, I've heard. People said, oh, don't say that. Don't even think about the possibility that men who are good fathers will have less testosterone because you'll discourage fathering. Um, <laughs> and could be, if you, but that's short-sighted, isn't it? That's, we come back to the issue of the survival and reproduction and individuality. Mm -hmm. Um, there's some, I'm not an expert on testosterone, um, but that study by Anne's story was replicated by some folks in Emory, and I think it's, I think also possibly it was replicated in Israel. Um, it's going to be, it, it's a very interesting question, because don't know for sure. Um, okay, first, I don't know how linear testosterone's effects are. What I I I only know some old studies I did in animals with babies and very high levels of testosterone given to baby hamsters. This is published in 1970 something. Uh, they stopped showing sex behavior, messed them up pretty badly. Um, so it's one of these inverted U's, one of these mm -hmm. biologically adaptive systems. 
Now, the second thing about testosterone is that it's got a huge interaction with vasopressin, and that is not well studied. And I can't give you a, a glib answer. Um, I, I think we should continue this conversation because I, once you start me on something like this, my brain forces me now to go to the literature and see if I can extract. And in my case, I have I have almost total recall of things that I've read over the last 50 years. So I can pull things up. I can't remember where I was, <laughs> but I can pull up studies from 50 years ago that might be hard to get to even with Google. Um, and I can tell you some of the things I've worked on that you'll find interesting. The first one was a study I did as part of a, a collaboration with Julian Davidson, who unfortunately also I've mentioned now a few other, all my friends are dying, but better, better get my work done, hadn't I? And Julian died a few years ago, but before he died, he, he was convinced he was the big name in sex and testosterone back in the 70s and 80s, and he was at Stanford. And he was convinced that testosterone made men more sensitive to sexual stimuli. Mm -hmm. And we did and published two studies and I helped, I actually ran subjects. So I was, it was done um, at the NIH direct in Bethesda. And we studied hypogonadal men whose testosterone came from a bottle and it was a double blind study blinded where even we didn't know what they had had, nobody knew, okay? And we were testing this with a device that measured penile erections during sleep, which is a very good indicator, turns out, of whether you have testosterone or not. So nocturnal erections are related to testosterone. Okay, so I have, we did all this cool technology, and you're going to guess where I'm going with this. Um, testosterone did not increase sensitivity. It did affect it. It decreased it. And after we finished the study, this is published in the Journal of Andrology. My collaborators were andrologists, uh, medical people working on this. It made sense. Okay. Male sexual behavior is easier to accomplish if you're not too sensitive physically. Erection is a very handy device for transferring sperm from males to females, but um, it requires some degree of not feeling pain or not, or at least not being hypersensitive. And the men who were off testosterone were um, more sensitive than the men who got it. So that was pretty shocking. But the part that came out as predicted is that the nocturnal erections basically stopped when they weren't taking testosterone during the time that they were being given a placebo. Or actually, we also had dihydrotestosterone, I think, never published that, but I think it worked the same as testosterone in that study. So, and I I can tell you though, that this experiment is ongoing at Brigham and Women's and somebody 
should go over there and do it. I would be happy to help you design this study because every male that comes there, almost every one of them, for treatment for uh, prostate disease is given antiandrogens. And they are, and the, the part that makes this experimentally very cool is that a lot of them go to a place called the Hope Lodge in Boston during the time that they're doing the treatment. So they're accessible for research. And the fellow who runs the uh, treatment group, they give them a combination of antiandrogens or antiandrogens and radiation, or presumably there are some that don't get treated. Um, it was, you could follow them through that treatment objectively, and they have nothing else to do. They're eight-week-long treatments. And so these people are in there with essentially nothing else to do. Um, some of them won't be willing to be in your study, but others would keep diaries and even let you do probably erectile function and so forth. I, I don't even know if this has been done. I mean, this is just the standard of treatment in prostate disease. They want to wipe out every cell. They want to starve the cells in the body, prostate-originating cells that are androgen-dependent. And if those, of course, hypothetically, they stay in the prostate, but during various treatments, they can become loose, metastasized. And so they basically wipe out men with this treatment. And I think you could follow them before, during, and after and actually answer some of these questions very ethically, no cost, just setting up the study, getting, and D'Amico, what's his first name? The guy who runs the lab is himself an MD, PhD, and I have a feeling he could be talked into um, doing this study. I asked him about it, I got to know him, and I asked him if they have done this, and no, we haven't. We haven't followed. We don't know. What's the time course? How long does it take for sex drive? Once you've zapped, they use something called Lupron, and they actually give it before the people go into the therapy. They turn off GnRH, so it's not as simple as just androgen. But I'm pretty sure they measure androgens in the men. I'm almost sure they do. So you've got data being collected all the time around this thing, but no behavioral data, none. And so that would be a very interesting way of answering some of your questions. Indeed, very interesting and promising. So what does vasopressin do to sex drive? Do we have any idea? Well, in conjunction with oxytocin, I think it increases it. If there's no oxytocin, the way I look at oxytocin, and I've written this down in a 2022 paper, I think it allows sociality to occur by overcoming fear of other. So vasopressin by itself might 
it would allow a certain level of bravery, but it wouldn't necessarily make you normally social. In other words, this is really very relevant to your questions about um, risk. Okay. But I haven't got a pat answer to this one, that's for sure, because I'm not sure there are any data. Um, I'll start to look, but vasopressin's even more problematic to measure than oxytocin. So I don't know, and it's not given. Oh, excuse me. You know when it's given? It's given twice, two different conditions. A vasopressin-like molecule, I think it's called desmopressin, differs from normal vasopressin by one amino acid, is used to treat bedwetting in children. Interesting. It's used a lot. And that is an ethical and unstudied aspect of giving extra vasopressin to children. And one of my former mentees, one of my postdocs, Sumit Jacob, who's a psychiatrist and MD, PhD at University of Minnesota started, she asked me this question 15 years ago and she started to try to do a study. So if you really want to know about kids and if you're doing a huge cohort, you should consider or be careful to find out if any of them are getting vasopressin because embedded in your data set might be an experiment on vasopressin. The other place where it's given, um, well, let's see. There's one more. Well, people who have, this is rare though, um, people who have a certain uh, deficit in hypothalamic function tumors, they are given extra vasopressin, oxytocin, growth hormone, everything. And I, one of those, a mother of one of those kids, they often discover this because they stop growing. She, um, followed, she got interested, Her the medical treatment included vasopressin, it did not include oxytocin. And so she added that to her sons. She got this, she's a PhD, but very proactive mom, fantastic. And she even wrote a paper on this all. Her name is Wu, first name, uh, I'm blocking. She, um, she wrote a paper on her son and she traced his growth and his sociality. So when he, before he got the oxytocin, she felt he was less social. I'll put it, it's in the paper. After he got it, his social behavior improved, but he was already getting vasopressin. So there's, there's no natural model of oxytocin deficiency. There are only genetic ones. There are natural models mutations of vasopressin deficiency. Uh, in rats, it's called the Brattleboro rat 
was found in Brattleboro, Vermont. <laughs> Somebody found these rats and bred them. And they, I think their sociality is off. I, but I think it's, it's, we have to, here's your trick. The trick is to differentiate, not to think of social behavior as just one thing, but to think of it as a combination of willingness to approach other and at the same time have a certain level of, I put this in the paper for you that I gave you, bravery, enough overcoming fear. And I think vase press and oxytocin together are almost perfect cocktail. And they allow the prairie voles to mate. They allow prairie vole males to be paternal. They probably allow humans to engage in sexual behavior. Sexual behavior is very tricky, very dangerous, full of pitfalls, ego, you know, disease, and so forth. It's dangerous. So overcoming that fear is one, and it was always dangerous. It didn't just get dangerous in the 20th century. People were, it was probably more dangerous to engage in sexual behavior with a stranger, at least. Well, with anybody. So there had to be a sufficient amount of, of uh, courage. And a mixture of oxytocin and suppressin, I think, is that. But if you don't have the oxytocin there, you it may convert into uh, inappropriate social behaviors, which I think can be a problem in autism, although autism is not necessarily a disease of low vasopressin, but it's something is off. It's dysregulated. So anyway, it's very, these are all, uh, if you can get blood, plasma, kept cold, under appropriate IRBs and and have the good behavioral data. I can tell you this much. We've been working on this kind of measurement over with lots and lots of criticism, but we were right. And the outcome of that is that I think every single study in the last 20 years has worked. Okay, we found something that made sense. So even though the blood levels are not the perfect proxy for the brain, because of these things like the opening of the blood-brain barrier, which people didn't know about. So there's a lot of, if you read people critiquing the field, they're full of fairly strong statements. Most of those strong statements you can forget, okay, because they're wrong, because something new came along later and showed they were wrong, like... Um, you know, that oxytocin couldn't be given by intranasal injection, wrong. That uh, measurements in peripheral tissue are useless, wrong, and so forth. So science moves forward very slowly, but um, most information put into the full context does give us, is useful, my experience anyway. So, Absolutely. So to tie this all together, yes, we've been we talking agree. about oxytocin, what's commonly called the love hormone. Uh, whether or not you promoted it as such yourself, much of this promotion was based on your pioneering work in prairie bulls, showing oxytocin to be related to love-like behaviors, such as sex drive, pair bonding, and 
oxytocin also has a chemically related sister hormone, vasopressin, which seems to be more related to the selectivity of care that you see in oxytocin and also defensive aggression in protecting those that you care for. We talked about the ways these two hormones interact and interact with other hormones. And it seems like the take home message there is it's very complicated and we still don't understand a lot of it. We talked about epigenetic effects of early environment and particularly environmental stress and how that impacts oxytocin levels and future care related behaviors. Mm -hmm. We talked about oxytocin during puberty and how it might then connect to other things that explain some of these uh, sex drive effects like testosterone. And again, there it's complicated and much future research needs to be done. Anything that you'd like to add to that, Sue, that I glossed over? Well, you did a super job of both extracting the important questions and asking them in the first place. Um, I All I can say is that I wouldn't like to encourage you and anyone else who wants to work on these. It's it At first, it seems daunting, I think, when you're working on a molecule as I was that nobody else was interested in, not only, or if they were, they saw it as a female reproductive hormone. This was, there mm -hmm. was a huge amount of misogyny, in my opinion, and I don't use that word often, um, associated with the lack of research on oxytocin. Now that we are very clear that it does matter to males, we, we are challenged with understanding the sex differences. And I think that oxytocin is part of the continuum and the, the variation in sexual identities and so forth that we're seeing people in a sense, begging to be acknowledged in our current culture. So I think there's going to be a huge amount of important research. Another group that needs to be studied in this context are people going through hormone treatments, which could include either sex reassignments or menopause or anti-hormone treatments like prostate disease, which is... If you live to be 80, you have an 80% chance of having prostate cancer cells, not necessarily metastatic disease. So we are, we're just in a time when the future is, is so open. And, but it's got to be what the kind of thing that you've brought up here, they have, these have to be integrated studies. They can't be siloed. We have to get out of the notion that it's an endocrine system and think of it as our body as a physiological system or these hormones as physiological mm -hmm. systems. Part of and the social system. I missed the sociostasis definition that you coined. That's very useful here. Yeah, I'm working on writing this up in a way that kind of articulates it better because I think when we failed to appreciate the importance of other we, we, the scientists who did that, and not wasn't everybody, but it was most, especially physiologists, okay, studied one individual. 
And that left them ignorant of this system, unaware. So now, sociostasis is only helpful if it pushes our attention to the larger picture. Thank you very much for your time, Sue. It's fun. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Bye-bye.